You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Caitlin, Mark, Towner, good morning. It's the Bellway Briefing. This is a national edition of the Bellway Briefing (laughs) because Towner and I are up early in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're out here visiting a great client of ours. And Mark, you're in New York. I am. And Caitlin is in Virginia, as always. Caitlin's holding down the fort in in Washington, D.C. But Caitlin and I are in the snowy northeast. Yeah, we are not in the snowy northeast. It is absolutely beautiful here. Good luck getting home. Yeah. Well, my punishment, this is not my brightest move. Next week, to follow up my trip to Arizona, I'm going to Minneapolis. So Ah, in January. Minneapolis in January. Yeah. (laughs) I'm saying he's going to move here now to Arizona. He might not leave. I think he's he's going full retiree at this point. It is. He's going to open up the uh, Sedona office. There you go. We do not have a Phoenix office, we realized yesterday. Not yet. We may now. We may we now. May now. <laughs> Howard may All right. <laughs> so this week, uh, the first in the nation non-primary primary, the Iowa caucuses were held. Total non-event. On the Democratic side, pretty much a non-event, Caitlin, on the Republican side. Trump ran away with it, as expected. I guess DeSantis edged out Haley. Maybe that's a little bit of a surprise uh, for second place. What do you make of it as we head from there to New Hampshire? And and New Hampshire is uh, in three days from now, three, four days from now. Um, Look, I think for the Nikki Haley campaign, Iowa was a little bit of a disappointment. She was really playing hard to come in second. Um, And it was also disappointing from my perspective to see uh, Trump lead with he Trump got 51 percent. I think he won all but one of the counties in Iowa. Um, DeSantis, as you mentioned, Howard, eked out a second place win of 21.2 to Nikki Haley's 19.1. We saw, and I'm sure you talked about it last week, that Chris Christie dropped from the race a few days before the Iowa caucus has yet to endorse, um, which I think is also a point of frustration for the Haley campaign, given um, that could have maybe helped her along a little bit in Iowa, particularly in New Hampshire. But look, I think, I mean, I I don't know if y'all talked about this last week, but the debate last week between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, DeSantis actually really shined in a positive way in that last debate right before Iowa and was able to take in a second, which I think really reinvigorated his campaign in a lot of ways. Uh, The day after the Iowa caucuses, he headed down to South Carolina, of course, Nikki Haley's state, where he's making a really big play. I think he's um, realized New Hampshire is really a bit of a long shot for him, given more of the independent voters and crossover voters and the fact that um, even Democrats can can register on day of to to vote for um, someone like Haley, which the Trump campaign is, of course, uh, using and, and, and widely broadcasting. But 
it's now all eyes on New Hampshire. And if Nikki Haley, unfortunately, if she does not have a good showing in New Hampshire and sort of underperforms expectations, I think you're going to see uh, a lot of donors flee, to be to be perfectly honest. Why? Why? Don't the Santis and Haley have to go after Trump? More directly. Yes. That's why that debate was so ridiculous. The fact that they're just whacking each other. And if I hear RondaSantisLies.com one more time, I might jump out the window. But you're absolutely right, Howard. It was infuriating that they're finally trying to start to softly, but that's the problem too. And voters see that and it's they, they've got to go over the guy that was not on the debate stage. And then we saw Nikki Haley last night just decline and decide to pull out of the last planned debate before New Hampshire. Rightly so, candidly, because why do another debate between her and DeSantis when the front runners not even on the stage? Yeah, it's a, they, they never should have done this in the first place, Downer. Like, well, you know, a couple. Go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say that. For political junkies like the four of us and our audience, I hope, uh, this is fun, but this is all academic. Donald Trump is the nominee. I was going to say he's the nominee unless he drops dead, but I think your party would nominate him whether he's living or not. So it it's all good fun, and I don't mean to rain on on this little parade here, but we 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 all know we all know that we are in for ten months of Biden and Trump. Do you think you would name a vice president in his will if that happened? Or how would that? <laughs> yeah, I, the intestate yeah, guess- succession laws of Florida would govern. Right? <laughs> Again, if they're trying to walk this super fine line, but. Tyler, it just doesn't, it's not working. And no, I don't know why they're, I guess they're hoping that Trump implodes in, in some way and he keeps getting, keeps getting stronger. And yeah, I mean, they're not hoping, well, he's going to be in jail uh, is one thing they're hoping for. But, you know, I look, I, Nikki Haley has spent the last few days in New Hampshire directly going after Donald Trump. Um, you know, I think I think some she has been um, for the last couple of weeks now, with the exception of that one last debate that uh, that DeSantis and and Haley had. Nikki Haley has been spending a lot of time directly going after Donald Trump. But I think you know Nikki Haley and and DeSantis and DeSantis was very clear about this over the last couple of days. I think both of them would have run different campaigns, probably a little bit more focused on Donald Trump than than on the rest of the field. But there's we're done. There's no time to turn it around at this point. I mean, we're she has, you know, she at least has the surrogate in Sununu. They're going around the state. They're going to try to, you know, have a very strong second place finish, probably ultimately at the end of the day uh, in New Hampshire. And then. You know, try to catch fire going into South Carolina. That's that's all that's left. DeSantis is gone. I mean, DeSantis is already giving obituaries of his campaign at this point. I mean, he's I don't know why he's still running. He thinks he's already out. When you know, does it end? He, is he, South Carolina, Caitlin, yeah. the end of your campaign? I mean, candidly, or, I think the writing's going to be on the wall on, on Tuesday after we get the New Hampshire primary results. But I do think probably South Carolina is going to be where folks. I don't think they make it to Tuesday. See, see, this is, see, but, okay. I think both parties have a, the same problem. 
and Mark, you've heard me talk about this, Towner. You've heard me talk about it over the last couple of days. No one knows how to appeal to Trump voters. They don't, neither party outside the echo chamber, the cult of personality that is Donald Trump, nobody knows how to talk to, to these Trump voters. And I, as I've said many, many times, I mean, I think Trump is, I think he's a horrible, every, I think he's horrible. Um, but he I also don't, thinks Barack Obama is still president. So I thought you were going to say both parties have the same problem in that they have older candidates who no, are both, both parties still. have the same problem in that. Look, <laughs> I, I think Hillary Clinton never, she should have been able to be elected president, but she lost because she couldn't appeal to white male working class voters and who feel left behind by the system, who don't, I think if you polled, look, I'm not a white working class voter by any stretch of the imagination. So like, I can't put myself in in their shoes, but Mm. they feel left behind by the system. White middle class voters don't spend New Year's Eve with Madonna. Ah, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Isn't it interesting, <laughs> though? Touche. <laughs> they don't spend New Year's Eve karaokeing with Madonna. <laughs> Nor do they go. Anyway, um, I'll stop. All right, Howard, uh, you're veering into deplorables territory. Come on. Well, that's exactly the point. Like, why neither but it's party? not. It's not, okay. though, because they're both going after the exact same. I mean, this is the heyday for the white male uh, working class, non-college educated voter. I mean, this is the first election where we haven't been talking about soccer moms for 20 years. And, you know, it's amazing, though, because Joe Biden goes down, gives a speech on Bidenomics again. Why the heck he's still giving speeches on Bidenomics? Somebody's got to somebody's got to figure this out. I mean, and just uh, eliminate that word from the vocabulary. But that being said, he goes down and gives another speech on Bidenomics. What is it focused on? It's focused on manufacturing jobs. I'm getting the factories there. I know the jobs haven't come yet, but the factories are getting up and running and there's just lag time. And this is this is the speech that he gives yesterday. They are literally both going after Rust Belt, white middle class uh, or not even middle class, sometimes sometimes poor um, working voters uh, and non-college educated. This is the Rust Belt's where it's at. Right. But what? What? Why? Does the message not resonate beyond Donald Trump? Why can not? Why can neither party, well, outside the four corners of that cult of personality, capture these well, capture these voters? Why I, can't they speak? Joe why Biden won those states <laughs> three years ago. I mean, like it's it's not the it's the, not just the about those states. That's Trump's base is across the country. Like we're sitting in Arizona. It's the it's the same thing here, Towner, and that's his base. And neither party can, beyond Donald Trump, seems to be able to to speak to people who feel screwed by the system. Well, I would say if Trump was not in the race, I think DeSantis would actually speak and get a lot of those voters. Shoot the Trump base voters. But they want to go to Disney World. It's a problem. Trump's in the race. <laughs> What the, uh, I'll ask my question another way. Where's the economic vision? 
Where's the economic vision? Why is it so hard? I mean, I have an answer on the left. Your party is too busy catering to everybody else. No, not factually true, but that is exactly the misperception that prevents Joe from Scranton to from appealing to those Trump voters in a successful way. The party has been successfully demonized over the decades, really, by the other side as being run by by your favorite uh, a- AOC. When Biden's record, just a factual look at Biden's record compared to Trump's is that he's done more for those people with his programs than Trump did with his. But that isn't being heard. That isn't being believed. It's what you were just saying, the misconception. Show me where where Biden has catered to the left. The bipartisan infrastructure deal didn't cater to the left. It's rebuilding bridges for the white middle class male voters to drive to work. On. And you blame that on the Republicans demonizing I blame Democrats it on, as opposed to it's, a, it's all of the above. I blame it on the party failing in its messaging. And I blame it on the opposition succeeding in its messaging. And then your favorite of them all, the media is in the mix. So it, it there's just so much noise. Biden's signal isn't getting through. But I am telling you, and and, and I'm not hearing a rebuttal, that I the, think- facts, the facts are on Joe from Scranton's side. Right, Towner? I'm happy to rebut slightly, uh, only to say that I think both of them are focused on it. I, I mean, if you look at the tariffs on uh, foreign steel and, and iron, yeah, for example, fair enough. that was Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump did do, I'm, I'm not trying to give credence to Donald Trump necessarily, but he did do some things to help in the in the Rust Belt, especially in the manufacturing sector, especially using, using trade tariffs. Um, Joe Biden has been... You know, first of all, the infrastructure bill is, you know, the single largest thing that has been done. The problem is, and why he had to give the speech yesterday, is the effects of the infrastructure bill have not been felt yet. Right. And it's time to put the money out the door. Right. It's partially pipeline, but it's also like a good example would be there are not enough projects in the bridge investment program, which was historic amount of money for rebuilding bridges because they ask a lot of uh, CO2 emissions. How does this bridge cut down on CO2 emissions in the applications? And they're getting rejected at DOT because right. they don't have that information. It's, it's things not like a, that, that mess with the message. Yeah. I'm, I'm shocked to learn that it isn't a perfect program. Fair <laughs> enough. But look where we are today. Literally today, there is the best border control package on the table. It's supported by the president and the Democrats in Congress. The best border control package that the Republicans could ever get, even if they take all three chamber, well, two chambers and the White House in, in November. And Donald Trump is standing in front of it. And he's standing in front of it for political reasons. And that is to the detriment of the people we're talking about who need and, and deserve that border control. It, it, he, he's not there for them, 
but they think he is. Biden, I believe, is more there for them, but but he can't convince them. But Caitlin, it's not just about Biden, because this isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, go back to the the Hillary Clinton campaign. Go back to the Obama presidency. I mean, this isn't the, the one Trump believes is still incumbent. The the it doesn't it's not it's not a Biden phenomenon that the Democrats have failed to articulate a compelling economic vision. And yeah, Mark, I agree that Biden has infrastructure big. I mean, Trump used to have his infrastructure weak and and nothing would happen. It is a good example. But the lack of vision for a future has alienated voters that look at the unions, the, the union voters, for example, that typically would have gone to to the Democrats are going to Trump, enough of them that it makes a difference. But that's another great example. I know you addressed Caitlin. I'm going to shut up in one second, but that's another great example. We have never had, never say never, it's been a long time if ever, since we had a more pro-union president than Joe Biden. And yet the electoral reality is exactly what you said. They continue to drift uh, right towards Trump. But Joe Biden has presided over tremendous gains for unions that have alienated, I think, in correctly, but have alienated some in the progressive wing of, of the Democratic Party. He, Joe from Scranton is actually Joe from Scranton. And, and I, I, wish, I wish people would, would believe it. Well, he's not a compelling orator to begin with. He's not a compelling messenger. Amen. This White House hasn't been good on messaging. I think the notion that he is an unsuccessful president I mean, I happen to personally agree with you, Mark, that he's this has been a president, successful, steady presidency. He gets no credit for it. But I think he's to blame for getting no credit for it. You got to you got to play the the hand you're dealt and the hand like the world is what it is. You have to be able to communicate. Respectfully, I think you both are a little bit delusional to think that the entire Biden presidency has been some overwhelming, massive success. The world is in complete disarray. We have wars breaking out and concerns in um, Taiwan with China and elsewhere. And to your point about the unions, Mark, the unions are frustrated with President Biden because a lot of things in his infrastructure bill are challenging to them. Now you want to lay pipeline, you want to lay bridges and streets, all of the environmental concerns that's, as Towner mentioned, hamstringing a lot of this money getting out. The autos, the auto unions, they're really stressed about the fact that we invested so much money into electric vehicles that are sitting on car lots, not getting sold around the country, picking winners and losers. That's why I think there's a lot well, that, of friction among the We can the blame unions. Patrick Martin for that. Patrick has driven the EV revolution there. The the economy has been in a state of, yes, we did not go into a recession. However, we have had serious challenges. Rents are skyrocketing. People are not feeling like they can afford the things that they afforded 
before COVID in 2018, 2019, and life has gotten a lot more expensive for a lot of people. That's why people are looking and thinking, was I better off from a financial standpoint in 2018, 2019, of course, pre-COVID again, versus now. And that's why I think there are so many people that think that the Biden policies have not worked for them and are not working for their families. I don't know. I, I was, Towner and I are out here in Arizona visiting, a, as I said, visiting a client that's a, they're a large, a very large national retailer. And we were talking yesterday about this issue of why people feel bad when the economy is actually very good. And probably the strongest, like this is a company that sources from all over the world, probably the best economy on, on planet Earth, the strongest major economy on planet Earth. The Chinese economy, for example, is having serious problems. This is a strong economy at a, at a difficult time. Everybody has jobs. And the only thing we could come up with is that everybody feels like they're waiting for the other shoe to drop, which... A couple of years ago, Mark and I had many conversations about, oh, the recession's coming, that we have to get ready from a business point of view. The recession's coming. Yeah. It's coming. I can hear Mark's voice in my ear right now. It's coming. It hasn't come. And nope. inevitably, yeah. there's going to be cooling of the economy. But actually, the, everybody has jobs. Um, so would you rather – go ahead, Tom. You said it twice. Everybody has jobs. And that's the problem is that people are having to work multiple jobs to make up enough money to pay for what they used to be able to pay for with one job. And that is the fundamental problem with the Biden economy. I, first of all, we did go into recession for a couple of months, even if Janet Yellen, who was like the most neutral party at the Fed, all of a sudden is like the biggest cheerleader at the Treasury Department. It's, it's sort of silly how, how much he flipped. But that being said, we did have economic problems. We do have economic problems because inflation outgrew wages. And so it does not matter if everybody has jobs. It does not matter. Anything Anything else doesn't matter. People are still paying more than they're receiving in their paycheck from an increased standpoint. And they feel that. It, they feel that at every income level. I, I notice prices being so much higher. And you can say gas prices went back down again. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, we still have to, by the way, replenish the strategic uh, oil reserve. But that being said, the bottom line is people are not feeling a good economy because they're still spending more than they're making. I, a couple of uh, observations. Uh, of course, the economy was different and, uh, and probably better pre-COVID. Uh, to to compare pre and post COVID economies is, I think, analytically flawed. Well, but, I would credit some of the Trump administration's policies for that, and I'm comfortable being on the record, Matt. Okay, fair enough. Not everything, even though he is among the worst people ever to have lived on Earth, not everything his administration did was wrong. Inflation went up. COVID. Inflation is actually coming down. Now we need Towner to get that shipping. We need Towner to get that shipping going in the Red Sea. I try not to interrupt, but here's the deal. Inflation coming down means it's not rising as much Agreed. per month. I, it's I already that. up. It's I not prices that. are not dropping. 
No, we, it is not deflationary. It no. is rising less fast. There has always been inflation. When it falls back to 3%, we'll be where we have been throughout American history. So that the trend line is better on inflation. But I, I agree, actually, with uh, what Howard was saying, you guys were saying yesterday, pe people are spooked. And I think people are spooked in part. This is a thesis you guys have heard from me one of these days. I'll write my book. But we we are not post-COVID in our minds. I hope we are post-COVID in our bodies and in the economy and wherever else. But the the enormity of what happened overnight when the world stopped in March of 2020 is still spooking people. Maybe. And I think it contributes to that waiting for the other shoe to drop feeling yeah. that we all have. I do. And thank goodness that's not factual in, in our lives today. But I feel it. This COVID yeah. thing is going to spook us for a long time. Well, yeah, it's but... going to have shaped an entire generation, too. I mean, it's yeah. just one of those oh, things. Yeah. Much... That fully processed as a society. Yeah, what exactly? The ramifications. Couldn't agree more, Caitlin. It, as you go down in the generations, it gets deeper and deeper uh, as an enduring. Yeah, look at uh, reading and math scores among, you know, sixth and seventh graders and, and look at the impacts on our kids and the next yeah. generation, the youngest among us. I mean, it's a challenge that we're going to be faced with for a very long time. Can we just remember from this segment, though, that Mark is a big border security guy? Yeah, I know. I'm border security. To, uh, pivot back to that for a moment. I'm really glad, Mark, that that you finally realized after you know 400,000 people a month flooding over the border in the month of December that oh yeah, we actually might have an issue here. Yeah, I'm what in New York. I get it. I get it. I'm in. I'm in New York. I get it. <laughs> Big border security guy. Might might some of the messaging problem be the dysfunction in Washington because. We've gone from potential shutdown to potential shutdown to potential shutdown. Yeah. And Congress is minimally functional. Yeah. Um, sure. You know, it, I don't think that helps the economic backdrop. And right now, I mean, maybe for the audience, you can explain where we are as far as government spending is concerned briefly. But mm -hmm. I, it feels like it's all, this is all. It's a lot of this is psyche. Yeah, I mean, and, but does Congress really need to do a lot right now? No, I mean, in theory, not. You know, the last don't Congress. Don't tell our What's that? Don't, well, don't tell our I mean, from a from like a macroeconomic standpoint, they're yeah. not passing another stimulus. Yeah. The country not, will not survive another year without safe banking. That is fair. That is yeah, very it's fair. over I mean, if we don't get it. There's some policy things, but I'm saying at least on the spending side, I mean, Congress could could cool it a little bit. I think both parties actually agree on this point. They have a differing opinion of how much Congress should should spend less, obviously. But uh, but, you know, to the credit of of Democrats, Democrats are saying, all right, they agreed in the Fiscal Responsibility Act back in June that they would do flat funding for fiscal year 24. And so, you know, I think both parties are, are aware of the fact that there is 
there is a, a decrease needed in the amount of increases year over year in spending. Right. This but, is but again, I, I'm, I'm finding myself uncharacteristically agreeing with Howard again here because I spent the, the week, the last two weeks, listening to clients ask me, do I have to do anything to prepare for a government shutdown? It is an overhang on the market. It's hard to feel good about where the country and the economy are when you have to wonder whether you need to prepare for your government going out of business. So I think the dysfunction in Washington, whether it is, again, factually driving the, this phenomenon or not, is attitudinally bad for the messaging, which is what what we're saying. Yeah, and, and you know, to your point, the House is in barely functioning mode at this point. Uh, the Freedom Caucus is essentially, you know, broken every every norm that we've had with regard to uh, voting down rules or or the the terms of debate that the majority party exclusively in the House of Representatives gets to to put forward, and the Freedom Caucus has rebelled against. That the, the House majority is down to what 218 uh, because uh, McCarthy uh, resigning, Bill Johnson from Ohio resigning, uh, Scalise is, is going undergoing further cancer treatments and will be out of out of uh, Washington for uh, for another several weeks and and you know functionally the House majority which was thin to begin with is is virtually non-existent and so uh, I was telling uh, telling this client last mm-hmm. night. And Howard was rolling his eyes as I was uh, as I was delving into it. Never. Uh, but, you know, we are at pre-1880 House of Representatives right now. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we had a sermon over dinner. Oh, wait, I love it. Bring, bring it. On bring the 1880s. It. Yeah, please. Give me well, just I, give me the give me the headline. I'll give you the headlines. In 1881. The House Rules Committee gained the power to put forward special rules, and that's what we've used since 1881 to now. That's given the House majority. It's if you have a plus one majority, you have the Speaker, you have the Rules Committee, you control the process, soup to nuts, if you can keep your members in line. Pre-1881, uh, the House of Representatives in the, in the first Congresses, uh, acted on a calendar system, but if you wanted to bring a bill to the floor and it was urgent that you do so, you needed two thirds, which is more than the Senate, where you need three fifths. You need sixty votes in the Senate, and so the House's initial um, margin that you needed to bring legislation forward uh, was actually higher than the Senate's closure closure uh, need. And uh, it wasn't until 1881 that changed, and the majority really took over in the and, House. And- Howard, how was this received at the dinner table? Standing ovation, I assume. Standing ovation. <laughs> yeah, I signed a lot of T-shirts. It was awesome. <laughs> this is why Cozen O'Carr Public Strategies is sui generis, is, is unique. I'm putting the over-under at five of the number of people in the world who could have given that speech, and I'm taking the under. <laughs> There's a few. There's a few people still. Around Don very few in lobbying. French. <laughs> very few in lobbying. Most are writing books or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. It's the House of Representatives is functioning under what we call suspension of the rules, which means you need a two thirds vote, which means 
God forbid, we're actually working on a fairly bipartisan basis. I mean, the, the right. polar opposites aren't, but the middle is starting to come together, uh, on things, right. which is interesting. Speaker Johnson is the poster child for bipartisan legislation. Well, Mark, that's a really interesting and ironic point because it's true. I mean, the <laughs> fact that we have Democrats now on the record saying that if he does put a border and Ukraine bill on the floor, they will, they're saying if he gets a vote to oust again, there are a handful now that would potentially, if he shows the courage to put a Senate, you know, a, a, a bill that the Senate sends over on the floor, they'll help him keep the speakership. I think it is an interesting place it, it, that, we, that, that we find ourselves. He's not, he and I do not agree on a lot. Not that he even knows that, <laughs> but I hope he does. I hope he does his job and puts that on the floor. And I'll I'll put a poster of him up for bipartisan legislating. But but when he doesn't, just to come full circle to the start, it will be because Donald Trump scared him out of it. Just Hounder's point, and maybe some of Trump, these, you know, breaking of the system is is gonna wind up leading us to a better place from the standpoint of the way that the House of Representatives, you know, the traditions and the norms of the House of Representatives are certainly changing and have been in flux and have been tested in many ways over the course of the past, you know, year and a half. But maybe this will all wind up for the good. And we can spend from now until November talking about how awful Donald Trump is and agree or disagree on that. I would certainly agree. But there's a fundamental failure to whether it's border security or the economy, there's a fundamental failure to, I mean, it's that border security is an economic issue in the minds of Trump voters. So it's all, it's all the same. There's a fundamental failure among the Republicans that want to win the presidency and the Democrats that want to keep the presidency. There's a fund and Anybody that wants to remain in power, there's a fundamental failure to speak to the people. Not everybody that voted for Donald Trump or that will vote for Donald Trump is a jackass criminal that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. The vast majority are not. They're just pissed off. And it can't be that hard to speak to them. They know Donald Trump is an ass. They just feel like they have no other choice. And why is it so damn hard for people to articulate a message that makes them feel like they care about them? It can't be that hard. And it's all the same thing. That's my view. Well, and to your point, Howard, you've seen the softening. You're, and I predict you're going to continue to see a softening in this whole never Trump lane. We saw this with endorsements last week. Mr. Emmer came out and endorsed Donald Trump, the last remaining member of Republican leadership to come out and endorse him. I feel like we all around this group know how he personally might feel about the former president, but we are seeing this with endorsements. We're seeing this Senator Rubio last week, came one of the strongest during the Trump administration to kind of speak out against Trump and his bullying tactics, came out and endorsed the former president. I think we are, I predict we're going to continue to see a little bit of a softening in that never Trump lane because folks do feel, to your point, Howard, that the government does not represent them, that the Biden administration is not doing what's best for them and for the country. And I think there are going to be a lot of hold your nose voters again this time, even folks that have been on TV saying they're never Trumpers for the past yeah. six years. 
and we could talk about this forever, but if they know Donald Trump is not a good person, if Marco Rubio knows Donald Trump is little Marco. Yeah. Knows Donald Trump is not a good person. So does Ted Cruz, you know, Ted Cruz. I mean, the guy went after his wife for crying out loud. It's insane. Yet they, they roll over and somebody has to have some courage and somebody has to be able to articulate a message to counter that a message, not a message that appeals to Trump voters as far as their base, like what's motivating them at their core and, and nobody's doing it. And they, that's not about Trump. That's about them. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And well, we can, yeah. And the I'm, challenge I'm cut the tape there. I'm exactly right. That's it. The Beltway briefing is concluded. But maybe concluded for the year because we can just replay this conversation till November. Well, Un- that we're means- in that feedback loop, and that. Let me Hold tell you. On. Let's see what happens on Tuesday. I'm. Some of us still have Balin, a little hope. Some I'm of us rooting have for still you. Have a little hope. The people I am rooting for you. The people I least agree with. I was going to say respect. Maybe that's a bridge too far. But the people on my side, I least agree with are those who say, I don't want Nikki Haley. Give me Donald Trump because he'll be easier to beat. That could not possibly more strongly disagree with that unpatriotic view. So I'm rooting for you on Tuesday, but I don't see the path. I just don't see the path. Well, let's see what happens, guys. Fun discussion. Maybe we'll just play it for... <laughs> 11 months but no um well, only be, 10 power don't make it worse than it is it's only 10 it's, right it's gonna be a crazy year meanwhile life goes on business goes on Tanner and i are about to go address the executive team of our client and guess what we're not going to talk about we're not i think they want to hear more about the 19th century house we're not going to talk <laughs> about politics we're going to talk about policy and what's moving the needle for them. And it's interesting to talk about this stuff. Obviously, it's critically important, but we also have to put it in, in context of people. Business Life goes on, business goes on. People are out there selling products and employing people. And it's, you know, it's kind of a bifurcated world in an odd sense. Towner from Arizona. Mark from New York. Caitlin from Virginia. Go, go Bills. And now that, Caitlin's a fo- now that Caitlin's a football fan, I know go she Bills. appreciates it. Go Bills. <laughs> now that you're not a football fan, Mark. Basketball uh, season, Howard. Yeah. Right. For both of us. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good. All right, guys, we'll be back next week. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.